0: with the truth that will set us free. But we have to be willing to adhere to it.
1: Though Solomon asked for wisdom, it's commendable, and we look at it, it didn't help him, because he made some foolish, foolish decisions. It wasn't God that was taking the kingdom from him. He threw it away. I think of many Christians that I've known, and God has done so much, and maybe everything for them, and yet they've thrown so much away, and it just brings total
0: destruction. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Sometimes your greatest gift can be your greatest problem, or in biblical terms, your blessing can become a curse. Today, Pastor Xavier takes us to the second book of Chronicles as he explores the impact that King David had on the next generation and their willingness to follow or ignore the simple truths of God's Word. Turn now to the book of Second Chronicles for today's important life lessons from this Old Testament book. The
1: book of 2 Chronicles, chapter one. David has died, and now his son Solomon reigns. So now in chapter one it says, Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthening in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. Make no mistake of the success of Solomon's kingdom and his strength, It was due to God. God is not given any glory to Solomon. It is interesting as we look at Solomon's life through these chapters, in spite of all that David, his father, had done to prepare the building of the temple, in spite of all that David, his father, had accomplished through the grace of God and really handed everything over to Solomon on a silver platter, he still messed it up. So God is the one who attributes the greatness to himself for the kingdom. Solomon spoke to all of Israel, in verse 2, to the captains of thousands and of hundreds, and to the judges and every leader in all of Israel, the heads of the fathers and the houses. Then Solomon and all the congregation with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon, for the tabernacle of meeting was, uh, with God was there, which Moses, a servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. So Gibeon was still the shrine where... The center of worship was, remember David had already brought the ark in, he had made another tent at Jerusalem, but it was still recognized as the place of the tent meeting. But verse 4 says, but David had brought up the ark of God from Kirheth Jerem to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. You remember that he came back dancing and then his wife, you know, just kind of deflated him when he came in and, and that left a bad taste in the relationship. Now, the bronze altar in verse 5 that Beziel had, uh, the son of Uri, had built, he put it before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and all the congregation sought him there. And Solomon went up to the bronze altar after the Lord, which was the tabernacle of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Everything that Solomon did, he did big. He didn't leave anything to any lacking, he just was extravagant. On that night, verse 7 says, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said to God, You have shown great mercy to David my father and have made me king in this place. Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David my father be established, for you have made me king over the people like dust of the earth in multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before his people, for who can judge this great people of yours? And God said to Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked riches or wealth or honor, or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had who have been before you, nor shall any after you have the like." That's a heavy question. What if God came to you tonight and says, You know, what can I do for you? Ask whatever you will. What shall I give to you? What would you ask Him? I really don't know what I'd ask Him. I would like to say to you that I would ask Him for wisdom, but I don't know what I'd ask Him. That's a tempting question, though, knowing that He's not a genie, He's a God, and He'll give it to you. Because certainly He's not going to dangle something in front of you, and then when you go for it, say, Ha, fooled you. And, uh, and though Solomon asked for wisdom, it's commendable and we look at it, but we see that even in all the wisdom that God gave to Solomon, it didn't help him because he made some foolish, foolish decisions. Solomon was known for his great wisdom in judging and reigning, but even in that wisdom he made some of the most basic errors, such as being unequally yoked, such as going back to Egypt. And really, he was a third king. Of the kingdom, and then it went downhill. After him, his son Rehoboam came to the throne in chapter 10, and then from there on, it's king after king. And the kingdom was divided, civil war. And so it wasn't God that was taking the kingdom from him, he threw it away. And I think of many Christians that I've known, and that God has done so much and maybe everything for them, and yet they've thrown so much away. It's not the big sins, but it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. (laughs) The little things. And it just brings total destruction. Now, in verse 13, we get Solomon's military and economic power. So Solomon came to Jerusalem from on high, from the high place that was at Gibeon, from before the Tabernacle of Meeting, and he reigned over Israel. Solomon gathered chariots, horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. Whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king of Jerusalem. Also the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. How'd you like that? And he made cedars of abundant as the sycamore, which are in the lowland. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Kiva, and kings of merchants brought them to Kiva at the current price. So in other words, he began as a humble king, but he ended up as a horde stealer. (laughs) Solomon, what are you doing? getting into the horse business. You've been called to rule. You've been called to represent God. In Deuteronomy 17, it said that he was never to go back into Egypt or to buy horses from Egypt. Now, this was being done even while he was building. And so all that wisdom didn't do him much good because he didn't pay attention to the most basic things of life, the simplest things. He says they also acquired and imported from Egypt a chariot for 600 Shekels of silver and horses for 150. Thus, through the agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. So, Solomon went into business, Solomon and sons, and it cost him. It cost him dearly. In chapter 2, we get Solomon's as he prepares to build a temple. Then Solomon determined to build a temple for the name of the Lord and royal house for himself. Solomon selected 70,000. Men to bear the burden, 80,000 to quarry. Stones in the mountains, 3,600 to oversee them. And so he was a great administrator. If you ever go to Jerusalem, go down to the city underneath to Solomon's quarries. You'll see where he quarried many of the stones for the temple there Jerusalem. Now one stone that was brought to the temple was there a tool set upon it. Everything was cut to size exactly at the quarry and then brought in by numbers and pieced together. Amazing, huge stones. And so he is attributed with that tremendous building feat of the temple. Then Solomon sent to Hiram, king of Tyre, saying, As you have dealt with David, my father, and sent him cedars to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. Behold, I am building a temple of the name of the Lord my God, to dedicate it to him, to burn before him sweet incense for the continual showbread. For the burnt offering morning and evening, on the Sabbaths and on the new moons, and on the set feast of the Lord our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. So he sets before him his goal. His goal is to please God and to do everything according to what the law had stated. That was the beginning. As I've said often, there's always not a very big problem beginning. The thing is finishing. And so Solomon begins to communicate this to Hiram. In verse 5 he says, And the temple which I build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a temple, since heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? So here Solomon tells us that he wasn't for any thought, trying to build a temple for God to inhabit, but only a place which could be marked as a center of worship to offer sacrifice to God. For he said, the heavens of heavens cannot contain him. So Solomon had the right concept about God. He cannot be localized as the gods of the heathen. He cannot be confined to one place. Jesus told the woman of Samaria, the time is coming and now is when those who worship God shall worship him in spirit and in truth. They won't worship him here at Gerizim. They won't worship him there at Jerusalem, but in spirit and in truth. And such is the worship that we give to God. God will not be confined to a study. We open prayer many times and we say, God, we just thank you that we come before your presence. But we've been before the Lord's presence all day long. And sometimes we we, we forget that, that he's always there, he's always aware. And so Solomon sets the purpose here. Verse 7, he says, Therefore send me... At once the man skinful in work in gold and silver, the purple, the crimson, the blue. He goes on to just enumerate the different things of the skilled men with timber and everything else. And then in verse 10 he says, And indeed I will give to your servants, the hewers who cut timber, 20,000 cores of ground wheat, 20,000 cores of barley, 20,000 baths of wine, and 20,000 baths of oil. So he was hiring them for their talents. Then Hiram, king of Tyre. Answered in writing, which he sent to Solomon, because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. Hiram also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, for he has given King David a wise son, endued with prudence and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal house for himself. And now I have sent a skillful man endowed with understanding, Hiram my master craftsman, the son of a woman, of the daughters of Dan, and his father was a man of Tyre. So here is a byproduct of an unequally yoke of an Israelite. Skill to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, wood, purple, and blue, fine linen, and crimson, and to make any graving, to accomplish any plan which may be given to him and your skillful men and with the skillful men of my Lord David, your father. And so, this is much like the tabernacle when David was building it. They were both built according to the specs that God had given, the pattern. It wasn't up to their own discretion, but it was a pattern given by God. David told us that before we closed 1 uh, Chronicles. And so, everything was done meticulously to the pattern that God had given. And so, he sends his labors. Then Solomon, in verse 17, numbered all the aliens who were in the land of Israel after the census in which David, his father, had numbered them. And they were found to be 153,600. And he made 70,000 of them bearers of burden, 80,000 hewers of stone in the mountains, and 3,600 overseers to make the people work. And so, as I said, a tremendous administrator. He knew how to coordinate things. And, and this is a gift. This is a gift and a calling of God within ministry, ruling, governments, uh, people are needed much in ministry at times to coordinate things. There's other people that are very good in specific jobs, but there's some people that can't coordinate and put things together. And so God raises people up, different gifts, different calls, different um, gifts that he gives. Now, in chapter 3, Solomon begins to build a temple, the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, Mount Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. I remember that's where he offered the sacrifice after God's wrath for numbering the people. As I've told you before, Mount Moriah is the very same place where Abraham offered Isaac. 2,000 years later, God would offer his son. He said, God will provide himself a sacrifice. When Isaac asked, Father, here's the wood, here's the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And so Isaac was a type of Christ, an offering. God seeing and providing would provide himself, his son, as a sacrifice for mankind. And so on the very same mountain is where the temple is. Now, from verse um, 3 on down, he gives some of the dimensions, the foundation which Solomon laid for the building of the house of God. The length was 60 cubits, a cubit's about 18 inches, so about 90 feet. 20 cubits wide, which is about 30. Then he speaks of the vestibule. He gives the dimensions, overlaid the inside with pure gold. Um, The vestibule is like the um, foyer or the waiting place. Um, The larger room in verse 5 was paneled with cypress, which was overlaid with fine gold. Um, Many uh, carved crafts upon it, trees and different things to decorate the house. In verse 7, He also overlaid the house, the beams, and the doorposts, its walls, its doors, with gold, and He carved cherubims on the walls. It was a beautiful, elaborate structure. And He made the most holy place. Its length was according to the width, and the house 20 cubits, again, which is 30. Now remember, the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle was a perfect cube. So likewise, everything in the temple was in direct proportion to the tabernacle, but not of the same size. It was larger, but it was in the same proportion. And so it was a model of that, but in different dimensions. In verse 9, it speaks of the weight of the nails. In verse 10, in the most holy place again, he made two cherubims. He fashioned by carving, overlaid them with gold. The wings of the cherubim were 20 cubits. That means 30 feet. And over the overall length, one wing of the one cherubim was 15 cubits or 22 and a half feet. Pretty big things. And um, they would be, like, remember the mercy seat? There would be one cherubim here, one here. The wings would cross. They would be facing down. And in the middle, God would appear in his glory over the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the propitiation or the propitious seat, the covering where God would be appeased by the sacrifice and he would accept the payment. And so they would look to the glory of the forgiveness. And so likewise, these cherubims, they would be looking down, but in, of course, a greater proportion in dimension. Down in verse 14, he says, And he made the veil of blue and purple, of crimson and fine linen, woven cherubims into it. Also he made in the front of the temple two pillars, 35 cubits high, and the capital that was on the top of each of them was five cubits, and it goes on to give those dimensions. Now in chapter 4, we get the furnishings of the temple. Moreover, he made a bronze altar, 20 cubits um, what's its length, 30, 20 cubits what's its width, and 10 cubits its height. It's interesting that the altar of, of bronze or the burnt, where the burnt offerings were given is that it is as wide as the temple. In other words... There would have to be total sacrifice to have any part of worship to God. It would be just as wide as that temple. And that's where the offerings would be offered. And you just stop and think, 30 by 30. And all those offerings are predominant. As we're going to read later on, there was not enough room for all the sacrifices. Just thousands of sacrifices that he sacrificed that day. And then in verse 2, he made the sea of cast bronze, the labor where the priest would wash himself. He made them completely round. The height was five cubits, seven and a half feet, and a line of 30 cubits measures its circumference. So there would be 45 feet in circumference, seven and a half feet tall. Under it was likeness of oxen and circle, around about 10 to a cubit, and around the seas, and oxen were cast in two rows when it was cast. So it was real luxurious. And it stood on 12 oxen, Three looking towards the north, three looking towards the west, and three looking towards the south, and three looking towards the east. The sea was set up on them, and all their back parts pointed inward. So, literally, what you had there is some portable pools. <laughs> I mean, these were huge things. In verse 5, it says it was a handbreadth thick. A handbreadth was the distance from your thumb to the end of your little finger. So, it was probably about six to eight inches, even nine inches thick, all bronze. Seven and a half feet deep, 45 feet in circumference, a mini pool. And these were the places where the priest would wash. And then in verse 7, he made 10 lampstands of gold according to their design. He set them in the temple, five on the right side, five on the left. And also he made 10 tables to place them in the temple. Now remember, there was only one lampstand, one table in the tabernacle. In verse 9, he says, furthermore, he made the court of the priest's the great court, the doors, the court, the overlay, these doors with bronze. And remember, the, the metals that are used even in the tabernacle, they are symbolic. Brass is always symbolic of judgment. Gold is symbolic of deity. Silver is symbolic of redemption. And wood is always symbolic of the humanity of Christ. So everything that was spoken about in the tabernacle as well as the temple spoke prophetically of Christ in the future. Everything. For Jesus, and prophecy, is the spirit of prophecy, the book of Revelation tells us. Verse 11 says, then Hiram made the posts, the shovels, the bowls, and he goes on to give all the detail of the furnishings of the shovels and all the stuff that's needed all the way down when they were brought into the temple. In chapter 5, it says, so all the works that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in all the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is Zion. So now Solomon is bringing the ark. David took it from Kirhath-Jerim, He did it in an unlawful way. God struck Uzzah. It was dropped off at the house of Obedidim. God blessed Obedidim. David looked up in the Bible or in the scriptures how he was to transport it. He came back. He brought it back. He put it in the city of David, Zion. Now Solomon goes for it there and to bring into the temple. And so all the elders, verse 4 says, of Israel came and the Levites took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitudes. Then the priests brought in the ark of the covenant and the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple in the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubims overshadowed the ark in its poles, and the poles extended so that the ends of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb, when the Lord made the covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. And so at this time, the pot of manna was gone. At this time, Aaron's rod was gone. The only thing left were the two tables of stone. Now, when the Jews pray today in Jerusalem at the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall, they pray for peace of Jerusalem. They pray that the Ark might be found. And they pray for the coming Messiah. The Ark of the Covenant, I don't think God will ever allow it to be found. Because man is too pagan and too idolatrous. All we have to do is think and remember of the shroud that was found seeming to be of Christ. And all the fuss that was done over that. The thousands and millions of dollars that were spent on examining this shroud and doing all these things. I don't think it was. But even if it was, it's only a shroud. But man always feels if he can have some kind of relic that can be identified with its origin or its uniqueness to Christ, that he will feel much closer or have greater favor with God. I don't think that's an exaggeration. All you have to do is look around at the people who wear Saint Christopher's crosses, they put the little idols on their dash of their car. Somehow we think if we can only be close or they can be close to us, we're safer. And yet, that's why I believe God would not allow that. It would be a tremendous finding. Can you imagine looking at those things? Not to worship them, but to look at the stones that God wrote with His very finger. And I'm sure that they're hidden somewhere nice and safe. (laughs) I believe God did that. Tradition has it that Jeremiah, when Babylon came and, and besieged the city for the last time, that Jeremiah hid the ark. It's a legend we don't know of the accuracy of it, but if that's the way God disposed of it, then so be it.
0: Pastor Xavier Reese and the importance of following the mandates of God. Now, you may be interested to know that today's presentation can be heard again anytime by way of the radio listings link at calvarychapelpasadena.com. And there's still much more to come of today's verse-by-verse study right here next time as well, but if you prefer your own personal copy on CD, we can make one available for only four dollars upon request. The title to ask for is Second Chronicles chapters one through nine. Now, once again, ask for the in-depth study titled Second Chronicles chapters one through nine when you write Simple Truths, twenty-two hundred East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California. Nine one one zero seven, or to make your request by phone, call eight hundred nine two six fourteen eighty five. Again, that's eight hundred nine two six one four eight five. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, twenty two hundred East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, nine one one zero seven. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. And then join us for more Simple Truths next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com